Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be talking about the subject of Reformed preaching. We're actually going to provide the audio from our recent Pastors Talk event uh, where I sat down with Dr. Joel Beakey and Virgil Walker, and we talked about the subject of Reformed preaching. In other words, what does that mean? And so since Dr. Beakey has written a book with that title, uh, we asked him to unpack that subject for us and to talk about the, the issues of experiential preaching. And then, of course, as pastors, register for this event, which is something that we do uh, on a month-to-month basis. And we allow pastors to uh, sit in with us and to uh, join us through the lens of technology, and then to be able to ask questions to uh, our guest that month. And so, Uh, As we begin this specific podcast today, we're going to be talking about that subject, and I'm going to really just start with the introduction of of Dr. Beakey and then dive right into uh, questions about his book. And so we'll pick up in our recent Pastor's Talk event with Dr. Joel Beakey. Well, today we have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Dr. Joel Beakey. He is the president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He is also the pastor of the Heritage Netherlands Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He has edited numerous volumes and authored numerous books. And so we're happy to have Dr. Joel Beakey join us today. And as we begin, Dr. Beakey, I want to ask about your book, Reformed Preaching. I want to ask about the specifics of this book, and and really, as we think about not only the title, but what's behind that title, I just want to begin by reading an endorsement by Dr. John MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur writes the following, quote, Reformed preaching is unique for its emphasis on learning to preach experientially from the Reformers and their theological successors through the centuries. Joel Beakey convincingly shows that Reformed preaching is doctrinally sound, profoundly personal, and effectively practical. Far from being a contemporary model, this work presents the preaching of the Reformation, which encompasses head, heart, and hands, as the enduring way to proclaim Scripture. This is a very foundational understanding of the Reformation impact on the history of the Church." So we want to begin by just simply asking about this specific book. Why did you write the book? And help us understand what does Reformed preaching actually mean? Well, sometimes I use this example. Um, when I, The day I left the active duty of the Army, I was in the reserves. I was, I, I was in the old lottery system. I had to go in, and as I left that day, my boss came up to me and said, you know, best wishes and so on. And then he said to me, remember, if you get called back up for war in the next six years, remember three things. Remember how the war that you're going to be called to fight in, how it ought to go. You've been trained to be a soldier. You know how it ought to go. And you've got to remember that when you go into battle. And secondly, he said, you've got to remember that wars never go the way they ought to go. So you got to be realistic. Uh, what, are the, what are the problems? Well, wars are always bloody. Wars always have surprising twists and turns. And thirdly, 
You've got to remember the end goal, the end goal being that you're, you're fighting for, for the country. Now, I thought about that later, that in a way, that's what we do when we preach experientially. We, we first of all, we preach how a Christian ought to be in his soul, in his life, practically. Uh, Romans 8, you know, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And uh, there's no condemnation. There's no separation. Just the wonderful idealism of the Christian life. We, we got to preach that. At the same time, we've got to preach realism. We've got to preach Romans 7, that the good that we would, we often don't find ourselves doing and vice versa. Oh, wretched man that I am. And the same breath, we've got to also be preaching the end goal that we're one day going to be with God forever in glory, sin-free, married to the Lamb of God, where all good is walled in, all evil is walled out. So we've got to preach Revelation 21, 22, and so on. So an experiential reform preaching relates to the experience that the believer has through the work of the Holy Spirit in which all the doctrines of grace all the biblical truths become alive in the heart and in the life of the believer. And preaching that stresses the idealism of Romans 8, for example, the realism of Romans 7, and the optimism of Revelation 21 and 22, that kind of preaching draws out from the heart of the preacher to the heart of the people, uh, God's people, a corresponding echo by which they grow more in conformity to Jesus and love him more and hate sin more and uh, want to go and fight that good fight of faith uh, all the more vehemently, earnestly, with zeal and passion. That's great. Do- Dr. Beaker, we've got a, we've got a question uh, from Ryan uh, Sickinger. And so, Ryan, I'm going to ask you to unmute, if you would, and then go ahead and ask your question of Dr. Beaky. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time for doing this. So my question, Dr. Beaky, is you obviously um, carry very many responsibilities on your plate other than um, just preaching. And so I'm just curious what, over your years of ministry, um, ways you've learned to be more efficient in your sermon prep um, and make the most of the time you do have in your sermon prep? Well, it's a good question, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> I guess I've never feel I've achieved that, quite honestly. I um, I always feel like sermon prep takes me a long time. And it's a battle I fought all my life because often I can't get to sermon prep until Friday with my teaching load here. So I probably spend an average of 15 hours per sermon. And I'm not sure if there's any shortcuts uh, my, my circles were expected to preach for 55 minutes, maybe 60 sometimes. Um, so we've got pretty long sermons to prepare, um, which I don't mind at all. But I think I would say to you that you put the best energy of your life into sermon preparation, especially into preparing to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Sinclair Ferguson used to say to that to us in the, when I was getting my PhD from Westminster, he'd say, brothers, spend the best energy of your life 
preaching Christ. And uh, that means preparing to preach Christ as well. And so I've always said it this way, still say it to my theological students here at Puritan Reform Seminary. So whatever you do, don't shortchange your, your prep time. Um, say you're bumping up against the end of the week and you, you're not adequately prepared and you've got a visit planned for Saturday afternoon from three to five with somebody you're counseling. Um, hey, call them up and say, can we reschedule for Monday? I've got a problem. I'm, I'm called to feed these sheep on Sunday and I, I just need this time. I'm looking forward to counseling you, but I'm sorry. Uh, can, can we can we move it back? You know, I've never had anyone say no to me in that situation. I think people understand. So what I do do, Ryan, is um, I don't have television in my home and I never go on internet without an express purpose, find what I'm looking for, come right back out. Um, yeah, my wife, my wife would tell you, if you ask this question to my wife, that I don't waste a single minute. So I know what I'm going to do. I know what I have to do. And I do it with alacrity best I can. But I don't shortchange. I try not to shortchange my, my prep time in, in preaching. Now, it is true that I use a lot less books in preaching than I used to. I used to read between, <laughs> believe it or not, 10 to 15 sermons on that text as all my books are filed by text in, in my library. Uh, I'd love to see how other ministers handle the text. And that's done me a lot of good over the years, I believe, um, to read what other great preachers have said about, about the text. Now I tend to read maybe three to five sermons and, um, of course, use the commentaries and think things through. But uh, the older I get, oddly enough, the more I'm writing out my sermons in full. And... Um, one primary reason for that is I, I preach in a number of different places, and I found if I don't have pretty good, pretty good thorough notes, I've got to go back and restudy um, things when I preach them again. And uh, not that I don't work an hour or two when I re-preach the same sermon. I do, but um, it helps a lot to do a thorough job the first time around if you're going to use the same message uh, elsewhere. And because I'm a writer and I feel called to God to write, um, I, I tend to write out my sermons in full that way as well. But then when I go in the pulpit, I just highlight in yellow the, um, the, the, this, the occasional main thought that I for sure need to say. And I try to preach as much as possible in between those yellow highlights without um, dependency on my notes. So that's kind of how I work it. But everyone's got to find their own way. But I always say to my students, saturate yourself, marinate yourself in the text. Um, hopefully start on Monday if you can, all week long, until you feel not just that you've mastered the text, but that the text has mastered you. I wish I could have said, I, I can't quite claim this, but I wish I could say with, with John Bunyan, I never did preach a sermon that I did not smartingly feel in my own soul. I mean, that would be absolutely wonderful. But you guys know that when you preach, um, if you've really mastered the text and it has mastered you and it's in your DNA, and when you stand up on Sunday morning, you're just filled with it. You can't wait to deliver the message, even though you 
go up there in weakness and trembling. But if that message is really in you, it's got to come out like a prophet, you know, the Old Testament word for prophet. You know, Amos said, the, the lion hath roared, the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You're going to preach a whole lot better than if you um, shortchange your prep time. Thank you. Um, guys, if you have questions, throw them in the chat. Uh, I'll read those and then and the most pertinent ones I'll, I'll bring to the top and then um, um, give you the opportunity to ask Dr. Beaky directly. But no, at this time we don't. Josh, go for it. Dr. Beaky, in chapter 9, you deal with the work and preaching of William Perkins. On page 173, you actually make this following statement, quote, He, Perkins, was able to reach many types of people in various classes, being systematic, scholarly, solid, and simple at the same time, end quote. Dr. Beaky, explain to us why this is so important and how we can learn from the, the preaching ministry of William Perkins. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a great question. Uh, two, two things, Josh. First of all, what Perkins did, which is very important, I believe, is he knew his flock. He knew his flock so well that he could kind of put people in different categories. And what he meant by that was, if I could use contemporary terms, he meant, first of all, the minister must know, uh, as far as he can tell, as far as the people confess, who are true believers in his flock and who are just nominal professors. So in your preaching, you distinguish, that's part of experiential preaching, Perkins would say, you, dispring, you distinguish in a discriminatory fashion as you preach by the marks and, and steps and fruits of grace, who are believers and who are not believers. And you call upon your people to examine themselves in the light of the the word of God. But I'm sure that all of you guys do at least that much. But where, where the Puritans went further than that is they also emphasize in their sermons categories within those two broad categories. So, for example, within believers, there are backsliding believers and probably a few more than we than we might know in our church. So if the text is Jeremiah 3, 14, you know, return unto me, I'll heal your backsliding. You always, you always make your applications from the text, of course. Well, a predominant part of that sermon is going to be speaking directly to the backsliding people of God. Now, you don't do that every sermon because it's not there in every text. And then you've got full <coughs> people who have full assurance of faith. And you speak to them in a comforting way, yes, but you also speak to them about the need that they go out and evangelize. And these are people that are full of love for Christ. And so you'd have certain parts of your sermon from time to time where you say, you know, if, if you if you belong to those who are privileged to have full assurance of faith, what, what are you doing in your life to 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 show the, the fruits of that? And are you. You know, Thomas Goodwin said a man with full assurance of faith has 10 times more spiritual energy to evangelize than he who doesn't. So you speak to into that situation. Um, and then you have what the old Puritans used to call concerned people of God, people who have learned to hate sin. They've learned to be stripped of their own righteousness. They have some hope outside of themselves in Christ, but not very much assurance. And they need to be led more and more into the fullness of Christ. Concerned believers, he, they, they call them, or, 
or Perkins called them humble believers. Um, but then also among the unsaved, you've got some who have impressions and they need to be really persuaded, perhaps. Maybe their problem is they're not coming to Jesus because they're afraid of God and his wrath and justice and they don't see that God delights in mercy. So you speak to them that they're welcome with Christ. The greatest of sinners is welcome. Um, but there may be some gallios in your congregation who care for none of these things. You don't even know why they're there. Maybe their parents want them to be there. But they're bitter. They're angry. They're the unconcerned unbeliever. So you speak to them at times from your text. Uh, warning messages. But also inviting messages. There's even salvation for people like you. So that's that's what Perkins excelled in, in his applications. The Puritans called them uses. He would reach two or three or even four, and sometimes in one sermon, categories of the seven major categories he had set forth. He would never do all seven in one sermon because no text does that. But he would speak to their hearts. So say you're an impressed but unconverted nominal professor, but you have some impressions from time to time. Well, if he zeroes in on you, maybe there's 10 people in the church like that, or maybe 30, and those 10 to 30 people are going to feel that he's speaking directly to your heart, from his heart, in that sermon. That That's the point Perkins would make. And so Perkins said, you've got to do this simply, the average 13-year-old should be able to understand the vast bulk of your sermon. You have to do it simply. You've got to do it powerfully. Your application should be powerful. It should be personal. Um, the best compliment you can get would be when you come off the pulpit that someone walks up to you and says, you know what? It just seemed like I, I couldn't see you. I couldn't see anybody. It just seemed like God was speaking directly to me. Like God and I were the only two in the audience. Uh, you know, when a man speaks from the heart based on the word of God to the hearts of the people in their various spiritual conditions and infirmities, he's doing real, may I say it, one-on-one -on -one counseling in the midst of preaching to 500 people at once, if your church is 500 people or, or 100 people. And the Puritans said, it's that kind of counseling that we should be doing from the pulpit on a regular basis. In fact, they actually said, if we preach rightly, we'll be doing more counseling from the pulpit than we will be in private. I don't know about that's true in our day. But in other words, a lot of problems can be resolved in the pulpit. But today, here's the problem. Today, many churches only preach 25, 30-minute sermons, and pastors are reformed. Okay, that's fine. And they're so careful about getting all the doctrines exactly right, every I dotted, every T crossed. Wonderful. But they forget the experiential, applicatory part of the sermon that discriminates and applies and makes the sermon very personal so that the hearer goes home and says, here's what I've got to do with this sermon, or here's the way I have to think oh, I, 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 after I think hearing this what sermon. you just said is, is worth its weight in gold, and I think that, that really describes uh, the context in which we live. I, I stated from the outset that a lot of what takes place in 
uh, from the platform has to be the, the word rightly divided so that people can be fed as a as a big component of, of the process of discipleship. And when we minimize the length of sermons and, and we, you know, we're, we're not thinking experientially, uh, we, we absolutely miss uh, some of the mark there. I, I've got a question for you, but before I do, I, Greg uh, McGuyan, I believe I'm saying that right, Greg, uh, you had a question that you wanted to ask. Dr. Beaky, if you would unmute yourself and then ask, uh, and maybe maybe properly pronounce your last name, <laughs> so that uh, so I see you there in the corner, so that uh, so that I get it right. Yeah, brother, thank you. It's it's McWigan, actually. So you were you were all around it. Well, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and ask um, your question. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm gonna try to avoid it being as long winded of a question as it probably is. Um, I. I surrendered a call to the a 10-year wrestling match, I think, that I felt like I'd had with the Lord over uh, submitting to pastoral ministry. And so I um, started preaching at a church, became their pastors last year, been there about a year, small rural church in Middle Tennessee. And throughout the process of the interview, I made it clear of my reform stance and views, although I think, you know, I was a little afraid. And I told them quite frankly that, that they were just looking for someone so badly that they would I didn't want it to cause a problem in the future. Um, and <clears throat> they understood that. And I saw a spiritual hunger in their eyes and in their hearts. The Lord pressed upon me. So I felt pretty confidently that the Lord was calling me to that particular church. And I'm seeing the growth, uh, spiritual growth, um, questions, eyes being open. I'm seeing the Lord working in those hearts and minds. So I'm very grateful for that. But I guess the the question that I really have uh, and I, is moving knowing that it's primarily a work of the Lord, uh, moving a church from a that mindset or traditionalism they've had for so long more towards reformed um, theological key points that I think all of us that are on this call would, would stand and affirm based on biblical truth, not based on our own opinions. Um, any thoughts on what that shift look like? Potential pitfalls? Um, just Just thoughts that you might have around that if you wouldn't mind number one lots of prayer <laughs> number two uh don't blow up the ship uh before you've got it out to sea well don't blow up the ship at all and you know move move slowly um number three re buttress what you're saying with good solid literature uh that's what i did when i came to my church here where i've been for 34 years I started a, a weeknight class um, with a workbook and said, I'm just going to move you through Reformed Doctrine. I had 350 people through that class and um, started at the beginning. And when we talked about different things, like say, talking about the Word of God at the beginning, Revelation, I would give them a, a book to read on, on, on Revelation that would reinforce the you know Reformed view of inspiration of Scripture and so on. And then... I would just keep doing that. I have sign-up sheets, actually. And um, I'd pass around these sign-up sheets on clipboards. And sometimes we'd have 200 people sign up for a book. And I'd order 200 copies at a discount rate and pass them all out. And the church, the deacons would pay for it. And, and um, so books were a huge, huge part of my life. And I've tried to make them a huge part of every, every church I've served of the lives of my people. And what happens then is that the people say, 
wow, these books are full of such substance. They're so full of truth. And they start seeing that the books they've been reading, which were kind of fluffy, are really empty compared to these. That's one good thing. The other good thing is that they say, you know what? Our pastor is preaching just like these books are talking, even though the language may be a little more quaint in the books, some of them, if they're a bit older, but the books in your pastoral ministry can reinforce each other. And then fourthly, I would, um, I would really take my time with pastoral visitation and talk with people one-on-one, ask if they have any questions and they understand the basic doctrines and so on. Um, and, and the other thing, of course, is which, which this whole talk is about today is make those doctrines come alive. Um, you know, uh, Paul Smalley and I are co-authoring my, my notes um, on Reformed Systematic Theology, uh, which I'm kind of leaving behind, hopefully as a life legacy. But our goal, our goal in the beginning is exactly the same as the goal I have in preaching. I said to him, here's, here's what, as you follow my notes, and, and, and you beef them up and so on, but here's, here's what we want to do. First of all, we want to give them, what does the Bible say? Then we want to say, what does church history have to say about this doctrine, pro and con? Then we want to say, how does a believer really connect with this doctrine? How does he experience it in his soul? How does it impact his life? And then fourthly, what are the major practical takeaways from this doctrine uh, for our daily lives? And then fifthly, let's end in doxology. And so we end each chapter with a poem or a hymn that praises God. And then we have some Q&A, of course. But I follow a similar, similar pattern in most sermons. And I think th- this is helpful for people. When I always say to my people, I want to make doctrine so interesting, so alive, so personal, so practical, so exciting for you. But I don't ever, ever, ever want to hear one person say in this church, doctrine is boring. Martin Luther said, doctrine is heaven, for by these things men live. So you take the doctrine and you make it come alive. So let let me just, maybe this will be helpful. I hope this is okay, Josh. Um, But I just want to give one example. And hopefully this will shed some light on this. Let's say I'm preaching uh, as maybe a reformed preacher but not an experiential reform preacher about the doctrine of um, just pick one that comes to mind. Um, intercession of Christ. I picked that one because I don't think reform preachers preach enough about this beautiful, glorious doctrine. But anyway, so say I'm preaching about it from Romans 8, 34. He ever lives uh, or Hebrews 7. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And I say, you know, Dear, dear church family, this is a this is a quite a special doctrine because Jesus is interceding for us. He's remembering us at the right hand of the Father, and He never forgets His people. Um, and yeah, that's good. But I didn't say that, did I? With passionate excitement, you're not going to walk out from what I just said and say. This is absolutely incredible. I felt like God was in this place. I mean, did you hear the preacher talk about how Christ is interceding for us every moment? The way I said it, even though what I said was truth, 
I didn't, I didn't probe deep enough into it, did I? And I didn't really make it come alive for the people of God. So now contrast that with this. Um, dear church family, the intercession of Jesus is something that we often don't estimate rightly. Just think of this. He says in Hebrews that every moment he's interceding for his people. That means he has the capacity to remember each one of you as if you were his only brother or sister at any given moment. And also to remember all his people at the same moment. He has that kind of infinitude being God-man. So here's your comfort, my dear friend. When you're a believer, you have a redeemer who's at the right hand of the Father and in all your troubles and trials, every single second, he is remembering you. Is there anything that could be more comforting than that? That you're always in the mind of your Savior. And if you realize that, then you understand, you see, that all things, six verses earlier, Paul says, all things work together for good to them that love him. Christ assures us of that by his constant intercession. He's governing us so minutely that he's remembering us from moment to moment before the throne of his Father. And so when you come to the wit's end of yourself, you've got so many afflictions, maybe you can't even pray. You just feel overwhelmed. Maybe you can just get the word Lord out of your lips, but you're, you're overwhelmed. Just go to this intercessor and say, Lord Jesus, I can scarcely pray. I'm overwhelmed, but, but thou art my ever-living intercessor. Pray for me when I cannot pray for myself. Let me hide myself under the shadow of the cross, but also, also under thy shadow at the right hand of the Father, trusting in thy glorious, perfect, abiding, ever-living intercession for me. Mm. You hear the difference? Amen. Amen. One speaks to the heart. Absolutely. One is only speaking to the mind. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Beaky, that was a great example that you provided. And, and again, with these kinds of conversations, uh, man, our soul is absolutely fed as we hear the word of God declared in, in such a way. I wanted to ask you this question. In chapter 23, you quote Charles Spurgeon, a good Baptist preacher, finally, but we have to wait to chapter 23 to get there. But that's a conversation for a different day. You say the following in chapter 23, quote, those called to preach the word must fit, must faithfully do the work of an evangelist. They must preach the gospel. And again, you reference second Timothy four, two and five. If the preacher speaks to people about God and man, yet does not speak of Christ, has uh, he has not done, he has not fulfilled his calling as an ambassador for Christ, Second uh, Corinthians uh, five twenty, and so wanted wanted you maybe to make some remarks uh, about that 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 particular quote and your thoughts around that. Yeah, well, Spurgeon, I love Spurgeon, and by the way, one thing I do when I prepare sermons, uh, when I'm when I get all my notes together, just before I go in the pulpit, I always look in the index of Spurgeon, and. Uh, see if he's preached on that text and I skim through it in about five minutes. You can read Spurgeon's first sentence of every paragraph and you pretty well get the gist of uh, his sermon. And maybe he's got an illustration. Maybe he's got something that I didn't see that I can add. And of course I quote him in the sermon. So I'm quoting Spurgeon quite often in the sermon uh, just for that reason. But uh, 
Spurgeon is a wonderful way of doing what I'm trying to advocate here, of making that text come alive for people and making it making it personal. But in this particular quote, he's really focusing on something very dear to him, and that is that, that Christ must be the heart. Christ must be the diamond, as Charles Bridges put it, um, in every sermon. So whether you get to Christ right at the beginning, whether it's the middle, whether it's closer to the end, um, hopefully not too many sermons is closer to the end, but really Christ is the sum and substance of all that we preach. And uh, he's leaning on the Puritans for that and the reformers. I mean, uh, William Perkins, we talked about, he wrote the classic book on um, for, for, for the Church of England and, and Puritan preachers that they use as a textbook in England, The Art of Prophesying at Banner True Trust as um as reprinted. If you, if you don't have that, make sure you get it. Um, we just reprinted the complete works of Perkins in 10 volumes. That's, that's, that's a gold mine for you guys. Uh, there you see the full original book, The Art of Prophesying. But anyway, at the very last page, so Perkins says this, um, preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. For this is the sum and substance of the whole matter. Um, and he puts it in the center of the page. Like, if you've missed everything I've said in this book and you just remember this, uh, you can't go too far off. So every sermon you preach before you get in the pulpit, you should ask the question, where is, where is Christ in this sermon? And am I making him altogether lovely and altogether precious? Am I wooing and alluring sinners to him? Am I building up saints in him? Am I glorifying his name? Is my sermon really Christ-centered? Does it really belong to what Paul said? Um, I, I'm determined, determined, resolved is the original Greek word, with holy resolution to, to preach to you nothing but Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. And so when Spurgeon got up, when he dedicated the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and I've had the privilege of preaching in that building a number of times, and it always moves me when I enter those pillars. Um, I keep thinking of Spurgeon every time I go there. And he said, we're dedicating this building to the preaching of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that no one will ever stand in this pulpit who doesn't preach him fully and richly. So, um, yeah, that's the point. Yes, we must preach about the depravity of man, absolutely, for 100%, and our great need for God. We must preach about God and all his attributes. But the sermon that fails to find Christ uh, at the heart of it is a failed message. And so every sermon at its very heart has a strong evangelistic note in it. And I think that's what Spurgeon was saying. Dr. Beakey, you actually have penned another volume recently, as you mentioned earlier, and made reference to it uh, in your Reformed Systematic Theology, uh, Volume 2, which is on man and Christ. Now, as we prepare for the upcoming G3 National Conference this fall, I would not only commend this volume to the pastors who are with us today, but also want to ask you to specifically talk to us not only about what you've written in this book and why it's important and something that they should actually purchase and add to their library, but also talk to us about the importance of the theme for our G3 National Conference and why it is that people should actually 
take the time and effort to be in person for a conference like this, because there's something far different that happens when you're there in person under the preaching of the word, uh, as it compares to just sitting and watching a live stream at your desk. So Dr. Beakey, talk to us about your volume and of course also about the G3 National Conference this fall. Yeah, I'll start at the back end of your of your question, Josh. Um, tuning in is the last resort, and it's better than not being there at all. But um, you want to be there in person. And I was very, very excited when you invited me to, to preach at the G3 Conference on Christ. To me, there's no better theme to preach on. And I, I want, I really am praying that people will walk away from that conference just filled with Christ. Um, when we backslide, when we get like a days ago, lukewarm in our Christian life, most of the time, uh, one of the major problems in that whole scenario, that fiasco of not living to the glory of God the way we should, which is our shame, uh, most of the time it's because we've lost uh, the luster of Christ in our mind and in our soul. And so I find, for me, that I love to read and reread great books on Christ, like uh, The Suffering Savior by Krumacher. I just wept and wept when I read that book the first time as a teenager, what my Savior's done for me. It's just unbelievable. Um, and the book that brought me to spiritual liberty, actually, was Thomas Goodwin, Christ Our Mediator, 500-page treatise on, on Christ. I, I can't think of a better, better thing to read. So in our Reform Systematic Theology, um, what, what, what I, because I teach a full course on every one of the six loci and on prolegomena, what we're doing, you, you notice there's about 600 pages usually on every loci. That's about enough for a full course assignment. So at the same time as we're aiming for beginning seminary students, it's really at a beginning seminary level, um, 600 pages on Christology for their seminary course. At the same time, we want lay people to be reading this and elders and deacons and, 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 and women and, um, and, and pastors. And we want to move them to adore and to praise Christ as a reading, as I said, in this five-step process in each chapter. And the riches of Christ are manifest not just in his person. I mean, that's glorious but also in his offices, states, natures, and names. And so as those are unpacked one by one, and people read this material, uh, hopefully not speed reading, but soaking it in for their own soul, what Jesus has done for them as prophet, as priest, as king, um, we're hoping that as they read it, it has a cumulative effect, which I think is the goal of a good book on Christology accumulative effects. So by the time you're done with a book, you just, I mean, I, I tell my wife sometimes, you know what? I just love you like crazy. But I say that with reverence. The believer loves his Lord, like <laughs> unspeakably. What, what a beautiful, beautiful Savior. What a beautiful way the gospel is that for me, a hell-worthy sinner, he comes and he's willing to suffer and die and intercede for me and he's going to come again and raise me from the dead and take me to be with himself and wall me in together with him in that land where all good is walled in and all evil is walled out and I'll be married to him 
spiritually forever and ever in that utopian marriage of glory, of oneness and unity and beauty. He is altogether lovely. Mm. And mm. so that's the goal of our Christology section, I think, to move people to see that their total salvation is in Christ and to love him far beyond they love any anyone or anything else. And by the way, um, right now at Reformation Heritage Books, we're um, this is a $65 volume. I believe we're offering it for $30, so it's below 50%. So we're a nonprofit at Reformation Heritage Books. It's heritagebooks.org. So um, books that we publish or books that I write, and then we order five, ten thousand 10,000 copies at a time from another publisher, we usually get at a big enough discount that we can, we can afford to do that. Well, Dr. Beeky, thank you for taking time to join us for this edition of the G3 Pastors Talk. We greatly appreciate your time and your investment. What a privilege to talk with you today. May God bless. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Beeky, for joining us. Well, thank you to you, man, and God bless you, and uh, bless anyone who hears this uh, this podcast, and may it be a real blessing to you all. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciated it. Really enjoyed it. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Thank you again. Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Dr. Thank, thank you for all your work. Thank you very much. Thank you. I wish, I wish, thank I you. Wish you all, thank you. That you all could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what life is all about. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, God bless you all. Brothers, what a privilege to enjoy this conversation with you today. Thank you as well for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for this Pastor's Talk event. Before you go, I want to just mention to you again that uh, as we plan for the upcoming G3 National Conference this fall, we have just released the uh, plans for our pre-conference this fall, and it's going to be a very encouraging pre-conference Uh, for pastoral ministry and the focus on pastoral ministry. The title of this pre-conference is The Temptations, Trials, and Triumphs of Pastoral Ministry. It's going to be on September 29th, which is Wednesday, and it's going to be a full day of sitting under the preaching of the Word. The different speakers will be Dr. John MacArthur, Abner Chow, Harry Walls, Chris Mueller and Tom Pennington. So you're going to want to join us for that. If you're going to be making an effort to come to the G3, then arrange your schedule in such a way that you could actually arrive on as early as Tuesday and get some rest and and then dive right into things on Wednesday for a full day of pre-conference focused on pastoral ministry and then roll into the G3 on that Thursday. So again, we want you to join us and we would look forward to seeing you there with us this fall. Once again, thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 podcast. We want to point your attention to our website. That's g3men.org. You can find resources and study materials as well as the archives of this very podcast. May God bless you. We look forward to seeing you next week on the G3 Podcast.